Shaw's introduces our new signature family of brands. We know you take pride in the way you care for your family. That's why throughout the store, you'll find thousands of products from coffee to ice cream, bacon to cereal, fresh produce to fried chicken, all with the quality you'd expect at a budget-friendly price. Best of all, we proudly stand behind our signature brands with a 100% money-back guarantee. Shaw's Signature Brands, quality you can trust, guaranteed. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the program. Scott Moore is up podcast. I guess uh, upcoming is Ronald Radar. She's the uh, author of Commies, A Journey Through the Old Left, The New Left, and The Left or the Left. Formerly the uh, co-author of The Rosenberg File. Uh, Ron Radar is a self-described red diaper baby. The book is uh, really his journey as, as described. Um, his life experience uh, in, in, in the American left, uh, where he traveled uh, amongst uh, political and uh, cultural movements and shakers, um, going back to the, uh, the 1950s and on up through uh, recently with his trip to uh, Nicaragua to, uh, to back the Comandante Daniel Ortega and his disillusionment with fame. Uh, expect Ron to be up with us shortly. So, uh, in the meantime, let me I, I'll, I'll lay out a little bit of what I want to talk about with Ron. Um, so much the um, the political particulars per se, with regard to the the far left's influence on American politics and culture, but more of an insight, perhaps, from someone who uh, himself is a former leftist on uh, on the leftist personality, which is um, something that I think uh, has not been examined well enough. It, it has distinctive features that I've observed, maybe not scientifically for sure, but um, nevertheless have uh, observed over the years with regard to certain ways of thinking, certain mannerisms, even certain memes that, um, that leftists tend to embrace um, as maybe part of a uh, of an overall political and philosophical outlook, um, I would say that um, the most, in most cases, your average pro-left person is someone who embraces a pretty solid and pretty comprehensive set of principles early on. Um, they internalize those. There's not a lot of thinking that goes on moving forward with that regard, and that uh, there's a tendency to uh, to operate from this sort of set template and move the pieces into that board um, at, at at a convenient time and discard other pieces when they don't fit. Um, you know, you're developing a strong pattern, and I think that what that is. Um, becomes indicative of what cults operate. And I'm not suggesting that um, the far left is a cult per se, you know, with a leader and with um, an absolute fealty, you know, like like Jonestown uh, or something, which, by the way, was a leftist cult anyway. But I'm saying more that um, there's a slavish adherence to um, sets of beliefs that have very little to do with anything with conventional notions of um, of morality and ethics. 
it, it has very little, you know, to the degree that it intersects with conventional notions of morality. It's more out of, out of, you know, it's a sheer coincidence. And it's much more based upon an elastic view of moving forward into this, you know, kind of vague, ultimately, and, and undescribed new order, this new way of being, this new man. I mean, Karl Marx left it vague deliberately and didn't really develop it when he talked about the ultimate goal being communism. That's what he called it, and that's what it had been called going back to the French Revolution. Um, and, and that this would happen when man had shed what Marx called false consciousness, what uh, others would he also refer to as alien entities within the, within the belief. And those were things that made us unequal, that were created as part of a, a general and indecipherable conspiracy, not necessarily conscious, by which uh, exploiters would change the nature of perception, of reality, so as to exploit. And the institutions that these exploiters set up, and uh, again, it's not an explicit thing. It's, it's, it's more implied and in general because it's the kind of thing that would be impossible for a leftist theoretician to prove. But the sorts of institutions that they set up and, and developed were things like the family, a belief in a creator of the universe, a d- divine God some, that exists outside of um, human control and that, uh, that this God sets up a, a, a moral and ethical code by which we can live and by which we cannot manipulate. It's, it's, it's immutable. It goes beyond the ability of human beings to... Um, to shift it around, which is the beauty of it. Um, and, and other institutions that emerged from those paradigms, such as the independent sovereign nation, the separation of powers, um, the right to um, free trade and goods and services and ideas, uh, the right to um, own private property, which is something that is natural, frankly exists in the animal kingdom, it's observable, but a system by which conscious, rational man could own property and uh, in a way that would uh, be orderly for us from a societal standpoint, and thus the development of the sovereign nation state, the sovereign local government units, uh, the ability for development of governance in a manner that would be, uh, you know, limited and and diffuse in power so that um, the ultimate sovereign could be the citizen who who derives ultimate sovereignty from God, and, and this, the rest of the system, all of this, which uh, is a system that you know, personal relationships, marriage, friendship, loyalty, the development of, uh, of an honor system, uh, business ethics, rules of war, you know, forbidden and accepted relationships between people, personal and sexual, all of these things they, they, they are a reflection of nature, but they're not necessarily natural. They have they've been developed over thousands of years. And uh, Marx felt that all of these things were part of a conspiracy to, to uh, you know, create a false consciousness, as he calls it, as I mentioned. And then it had to be torn down in order to create a new consciousness. 
Now, the left is very indirect about what that is. I would suggest that the average leftist has no idea what that is. They've never thought about it. They've just internalized it as something good. But when you get down to it, the closest description that one can derive based upon what has been discussed is this idea of collectivism, the idea that the great virtue of the communist edifice is to move mankind into a new way of being, that man gives up all of these false consciousness, which were created by exploiters. Man gives up the ability to own property or the right to own property, the right to have money as an abstract means of exchanging property, the right to free expression, the right to ultimately personal identity itself with this utopian idea that there's a great virtue in man becoming a collective. Now, the collective, of course, is a condition that is besides impossible because man cannot be collectivized. We have consciousness. We are aware of who we are. We have the ability to reason. And no reasoning being would accept collectivism. If it it had ever happened, it would be a, a world and a society that it's impossible to even imagine what 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 would be involved in that. It's just it, it, it couldn't happen. It's not it's not um, anything that could possibly exist. We would have to give up our our entire humanity, our ability to to think or to function. And yet, the communist movement has tried to implement this and has done so with with open eyes. I mean, we could talk about. Uh, all the way back you know, to the French to the co-opting of the French Revolution by the Jacobin reign of terror. The French Revolution itself was a, an American-inspired revolution, which was a conservative revolution. The American Revolution was a right-wing revolution. Um, the French thought they were getting the same, which was a restoration of what they viewed as natural rights, property, family, sovereignty, faith. The French thought they would get the same in their own context, which was under a um, limited monarchy. And in fact, they did get that in in, uh, 1789 when the French monarch, Louis XVI, called for the convening of the Estates de General, which was, in in a sense, a French version of a Congress. And that he then charged the Estates de General with developing a constitution. So... This was all done without firing a shot. It was entirely bloodless, and it was something that was filled with a sense of hope that France had uh, moved in the direction of America, that the French were inspired by America. The French knew Americans. Don't forget France was the main ally of the American Revolution. You had uh, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and others spend many years, both during and after the war, the American war, that is, in Paris, where they were where they were admired and where Jefferson actually participated in the drafting of that first constitution. Uh, you know, so the French understood American freedom as it wafted across the Atlantic and as it influenced them, and they wanted that. But what happened was in 1893, the France experienced a coup d'etat by the Jacobins, who were a secret society. 
it was said at the time by people uh, writers such as Augustine Barrowell and and um, John Robeson and others that this secret society had at least been inspired by if it had not actually been a part of the original modern secret society um, that is of that ilk, and that was the Illuminati, which was established on, July, on May 1st, 1776 in Ingolstadt, Bavaria. Whether or not it was is, is not relevant. The fact of the matter is that the Jacobin movement was a secret society, and it was inspired by these principles that had been laid out by the founder of the Illuminati, that being Adam Weishaupt, and that was world government, the end of religion, and a collectivist, you know, ant colony for the world, ultimately. And thus they they overthrew the legitimate French Revolution. They beheaded the king and his wife. They turned on the guillotine, which cranked out, you know, death virtually 24 hours a day for a whole year, killing upwards of 100,000 people. And they launched... Well, one of their activists, Gracchus Babouf, who uh, led another rebellion in 1798, 97, 98, around that time, um, once the French uh, government, the, the, the uh, Jacobin government had been dethroned by the reaction, that he led what, what he called a communist revolution. So uh, you know, it is reasonable, and in fact it is correct to refer to the reign of terror as the world's first communist government the first modern communist government, I should say. And that every modern communist government since then has imitated that model. They have come to power through a coup d'etat, through deception, by use of secretive you know, subversion and, and, a, and a secretive organization or two. And once in power, they have launched a reign of terror. They have you know, slaughtered their enemies. They've uh, consolidated their power. They have taken totalitarian control over their countries, a control that had been previously unprecedented. And uh, thus you have less radical, but nevertheless just as socialist and just as leftist regimes, often doing the same, and that would include Nazi Germany and some of the, uh, the dictatorships in South America, which were involved in terrible atrocities. These regimes were, were established because mainly they were not as radical. Mussolini is another one. They were not as radical as the communist regimes of Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao. They, they went halfway. They, they were reacting to that radical regime. Many of them were anti-communist. But nevertheless, they had moved their country radically to the left, much more so than it had previously been, in terms of justifying their power on utopian lines, the development of the new man, the development of the new order, the move ultimately toward the international ant colony, which is what they craved. And so you had all of this move in the 20th, in the modern, in modern times, really, it sort of launched in the 20th century. And the result was the slaughter of hundreds of millions of people, the impoverishment of hundreds of millions of more, disease, death, destruction, the loss of general, general, you know, real genuine human progress, which would have been based upon the very institutions that they sought to destroy but could not fully destroy. And uh, 
oftentimes this movement, the communist movement, besides being called progressive, it is called modern. One of my theses in one of my books is that it is not modern. In fact, this is also said by Whitaker Chambers, who, like Ron Radosh, was a former communist who had had a, um, a change of heart, who the scale fell from his eyes in the most ancient of times. The Whitaker Chambers referred to it as the world's second oldest religion. He said that it is referred to allegorically as found in the story of the Garden of Eden, and it is represented by the serpent who tempts Eve with the apple by, by luring her into taking a bite of the forbidden fruit under the guise that by doing so, she and Adam could be like gods. They could know everything, good and evil. They could know they would have super hyper-consciousness. They could create a utopian world, essentially by overthrowing God, which was what the agenda was of the serpent, who represents Satan. And it is that religion that has threaded its way through human experience, through human history. A more secular understanding, I think, was actually very well described by uh, Frederick Engels, who was Marx's business partner, financier, the capitalist uh, owner of, of a factory, who made reference to primitive socialism. Primitive socialism is something that uh, has also been written about by um, by sociologist uh, Julian James, who wrote a book about the bicameral mind. He's a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And he talks about ancient man as being collective. Ancient man did not yet have the ability to achieve reason, individual consciousness. So that ability was still weak. It was still in its early stages. And so while ancient man was an, an emotional being, he was not yet able to exercise the sovereign conscious functions of, of, a, of a man created in the image of God, I mean, a, a functioning individual. And thus, ancient man was prone to collectivism, what Engels called primitive socialism. And he had a very weak understanding of, of morals of, of, and of ethics, ethical behavior, and, and of, of reason and, and of all of the things that we've, we've developed as a human race. And thus he was more prone to mass speak, mass consciousness, the, uh, you know, the, the ministrations of, of a dictator, of a leader who would lead the way, or of a pagan god. I mean, this is what paganism was all about, actually. It was something that could only exist, really, in, in pre-conscious times. But as man achieved consciousness, according to James, this occurred because of the growing complexity of knowledge and of the exchange and storage of knowledge forced man to develop what he called a bicameral mind, a left-right brain, in order to integrate the, the complexities. Man developed an awareness of reality, of reason. Man began to develop the institutions that we kind of take for granted today, organized faith, organized governance, private ownership. The Bible is filled with references of how this, in a sense, Abraham is the first conscious man, 
Sarah is the first conscious woman. These these uh, were, were two individuals that were able to discern God and discern ethics and 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 uh, reason and, and character. They began to develop private property when Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah for his wife. They began to and family. They began to develop the concept of the nation state when they discerned the borders of the land that God showed them as being between the Jordan River and the Great Sea. Um, later, the uh, children of Israel began to further develop other elements and aspects of, of proper moral and ethical behavior, uh, mo- most of it found in the Torah itself. Uh, you know, Rules of warfare, how to treat labor, which back then was slaves, um, how uh, proper relationships between a man and a woman, proper relationships in business, proper family relationships, proper you know, relationships between nation states, and ultimately the proper relationship between the individual and God himself. These are things that developed over time and are fully developed pages of the Bible. And so, you know, you have the, the emergence away from collectivism, and yet the, the collectivist swan song, the collectivist siren song, I should say, the, the, the voice and the uh, that, that, that drowns out rational thinking, it has always been you can be as God. You can transcend these institutions and, and create a new way of being, a new order. It's the principle of anarchy. And it can be a creative principle. I mean, it doesn't just exist because it's all bad. You know, I mean, there, there's a way to harness that kind of energy and be creative, to go outside of yourself as a way of looking back within. It should be done for in a moral context, in the for the right reasons, for the reason that also appeals to a, a, the positive side of human nature, and that is to improve your life and thus improve the life of your community. Not to try to tear everything down, not to try to destroy everything that has been built that is good, it has more to do with getting rid of stuff that's not good and improving on uh, that which is good, that which is edifying, that which improves the ability of the individual to be a free, sovereign person who can control to a higher degree his own life and his own destiny and thus move away from collectivism. So you have this strain running throughout the history of man and moving right up to uh, to modern times. Now, it looks like I've had a miscommunication with my guest today, that being Ron Radosh. Maybe we, we, we just didn't cross uh, cross our, <laughs> our, our um, information properly. So I'm going to have to have Ron back. But um, I'm glad I've had a chance to get to talk about this and to get this off my chest today. Uh, because Ron's book is, uh, to my way of thinking, it's excellent. I mean, I read it to me. This is like reading a, a comic strip. It's like People magazine. It's uh, <laughs> I read the whole thing in just two or three sittings. And he talks about his experiences with people on the left from his childhood when he went to some, you know, communist summer camp, right up to his days as a 60s activist radical and, and on to his disillusionment. There's a couple of things I, I would want to point out to, to Ron when I do have him on. 
and that will come up, so watch for that. And that is that he mentions Pete Seeger. Now, Pete Seeger was the great left-wing, you know, banjo player, the member of the Weavers. I mean, I, with, with full disclosure, I grew up listening to Pete Seeger. My father was a big admirer, and um, my father's members of his family were communists. Um, and that uh, Seeger was, uh, you know, the, the classic example of, of a leftist right up to his, his dying day, and he lived to be well into his 90s. He passed away, I think, about a year ago now. But he points out that Seeger, in 1941, along with his uh, folk band, the Almanac Singers, released an album viciously criticizing President Franklin Roosevelt as a as a as a you know capitalist lackey and as a capitalist roadster and as a someone who was secretly controlled by the the Rockefellers or who knows or the Rothschilds I guess and that we should stay out of the war. Now let's point out that this was already two years into World War Two. And the reason why Pete Seeger and the and the Almanac singers recorded this album was because they were a part of the communist left in this country. Seeger himself was a member of the Communist Party, according to his own admission, which he mentioned only recently. And they wanted to support Hitler and Stalin because that was the left-wing uh, party line in the first two years of World War II. You know, to be brief, we should note that World War II was launched in September of 1939 when both Hitler and Stalin invaded and conquered and divvied up Poland. They had signed an agreement earlier called the Hitler-Stalin Pact or the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact where they formalized an alliance that had already been in place anyways. And they agreed to divvy up Eastern Europe amongst themselves. So the first two years of the war, from September of 39 right up to June of 41, Hitler and Stalin were allied. And it was during that time that Hitler occupied France. He occupied the, uh, the Scandinavian countries. He occupied Greece. He, he invaded and occupied Yugoslavia, pushed his way into northern Africa, you know, consolidated his alliance with the with the Italian fascists, and uh, and Stalin he occupied the Baltic states. He invaded Finland, took a slice of Romania, and and thus you had World War II. And the American left, including Pete Seeger, were allied with Stalin, and thus they wanted to keep America out of the war because that was what Stalin and his ally Hitler wanted. Now, the Almanac Singers album came out in May, and then in June, Hitler double-crossed Stalin with Operation Barbarossa, where he invaded Russia. And thus, they took a 180-degree turn. All of a sudden, the American left became super patriotic, super warlike. The peace movement was over. Time to grab arms. Pete Seeger sent Roosevelt a letter saying that he was going to you know, take up an arm and, and start firing and and whatnot. I only bring it up, and I only have another minute here, to point out that this is the mindset, the personality of the left. It's not based upon any real system of morals or ethics. 
It's based upon whatever is going to increase godless earthly power given time. And that's why you had the left defending the Rosenbergs, who gave the Soviet Union a nuclear bomb, right? That this was seen as good. They were seen as heroes. We could talk about the fact that they were only ball players, you know, some much bigger people involved in that. But you had this personality. So that's what we'll be talking about with Ron Radosh. When he comes on, he'll be on next during the next podcast. And uh, I'll just leave you to think about this. I mean, what is the personality of the left? And uh, I might as well take in a quick plug for my books. They're available at Amazon.com. Just go there, put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code, and you shall see about uh, over 10 nonfiction books come up at Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, television program, which is live at uh, BNN, Boston Neighborhood Network, is archived on YouTube if you want to look at that. That's also called Chuck Moore Speaks. And uh, I guess I want to thank you all for listening this afternoon. Again, I apologize for Ron not being here. He'll be back next time when, when we uh, we will be doing this uh, podcast. So watch for that and watch for uh, Blog Talk Radio's uh, Chuck Moore Speaks. Anyways, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And um, drive safely and have a very nice afternoon. Shaw's introduces our new signature family of brands. We know you take pride in the way you care for your family. That's why throughout the store, you'll find thousands of products from coffee to ice cream, bacon to cereal, fresh produce to fried chicken, all with the quality you'd expect at a budget-friendly price. Best of all, we proudly stand behind our signature brands with a 100% money-back guarantee. Shaw's Signature Brands, quality you can trust, guaranteed.